On Black Friday, November 2018, the Trump administration published the fourth U.S. National Climate Assessment. When asked about the report by the White House Press Corps, President Trump said, quote, I've seen the report. I've read parts of it. I don't believe it. <laughs> Welcome back to Living on a Changing Planet. My name is Carter Powis. I'm a climate scientist and economist from Toronto, Canada, and I am joined today, as always, by my co-host Patrick, who is a clinical psychologist from Oxford, England. Today, we are very lucky to be joined by Dr. Donald Wobbles. Don was one of the co-leads for the first volume of the fourth U.S. National Climate Assessment. He is the Harry E. Preble Professor of Atmospheric Science at the University of Illinois, he is an atmospheric physicist and chemist who has studied atmospheric science for over 40 years, has over 500 peer-reviewed scientific publications, and who has served as a chapter lead or report lead on multiple IPCC reports. We're very excited, Don, to have you on the show and to speak to you today about what you have learned about atmospheric science over your career how your feelings about atmospheric science and climate change have changed, and most importantly, about your experience communicating climate science under difficult circumstances. Don, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Carter and Patrick. It's, it's uh, nice to join you and hopefully have a nice conversation. Let's start with the same first question that we try and ask all of our guests. Could you tell us about how you first came to learn about climate change? and what that experience was like for you. Or maybe phrased in a more interesting way, how did an electrical engineer end up as a climate scientist? <laughs> That's right. You know, so my first two degrees from Illinois were in electrical engineering. As a graduate student, I accidentally got involved with a, a problem involving the atmosphere, and I just said, wow, this is, this is fun. Uh, more fun to me than doing engineering. And so, um, I basically switched my career on the spot to studying the atmosphere. I started out developing models, some of the very first models of the, to study stratospheric ozone. And, um, and then, uh, after I first went to NOAA, uh, after I completed my master's degree, and then I went to Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California and, uh, went back to school part-time while I was doing that. But while I was there, I was uh, developing these new models of uh, atmospheric chemistry, looking at the ozone layer, looking at air quality issues near the Earth's surface. And my colleagues were doing studies of climate change. And it was in very early days, in you know, early 1970s, uh, where they were already studying the Earth's climate system. And gradually, I, you know, I kept doing what I was doing because I had plenty, plenty to work on but gradually, I, I said, well, I can do that, too, because most of the people studying climate change were physicists who didn't know any atmospheric chemistry and didn't know much about the composition of the atmosphere. And so the fact that things like the stratospheric ozone layer itself is important to climate change was something they were kind of ignoring. And I said, well, I can contribute to this. I started doing radiative uh, transfer studies of the impacts of the composition of the atmosphere on climate in roughly the mid-1980s. And, uh, and as you mentioned, I was then selected to be one of the coordinating lead authors for the first international climate assessment. Now, part of the reason I was asked to do that was not only because of the rate of transfer studies I was doing, but was because in 1981, I had developed a concept called ozone depletion potentials that translates the science of the concerns about stratospheric ozone into uh, a, a simple measure that even lawyers could understand for, for doing policy. And, and, uh, and so they wanted me to do the same kind of thing for climate change. And I would, so they, they invited three or four of us who were doing thinking about climate in that regard, how we translate the science into something useful for policy, uh, leading one gas to another. And at that uh, you now that first assessment, we came up with the concept called global warming potentials, which is used in the Paris Agreement, et cetera. So 
Um, so the, um, they, they were successful in getting us uh, to, uh, to do that. Can you walk us through how the science has changed since you were first exposed to it in the late 70s, early 80s? I have to imagine you've seen some pretty dramatic changes in how scientists are thinking about climate change. Oh, it's so different. But, you know, the basic issue, you know, if I were to say back then, uh, would a doubling of carbon dioxide have uh, caused a significant impact on, on uh, the Earth's climate system? The answer was clearly yes. And, um, and in fact, the numbers wouldn't be all that far different from the numbers now. So I, I don't want to leave the impression that we didn't know anything because we actually did know quite a bit, but um, the models were so simple compared to what they are now. Our understanding of the processes was much simpler than they are now. And so that first assessment in 1990 was, uh, you know, had very little in the way of useful projections of what climate change was going to look like um, because, you know, the, we just didn't know enough. So when I first started um, inter interacting with my colleagues at Livermore and then some of their friends like Steve Schneider, who ended up being um, you know, one of the real leaders in pushing um, climate and climate policy, I found it fascinating, first of all. You know, as a scientist, I think you're always thinking about it from a science perspective and you don't always think about things from a, um, what, what it really means to humanity. But... Um, but we also knew it could be very scary. And at that time, we knew nothing about the potential impacts on severe weather, and which is, you know, severe weather and, and sea level rise are really, you know, the really damaging sides of, uh, of climate change. And not, it's not just global warming. You know, it's, it's uh, the idea that the earth might warm a little is, it's not a big deal. But the big deal is that it turns into more heat waves and more severe rainfalls and, more severe storms, et cetera. Uh, so, um, so given what we knew back then, it didn't seem nearly as scary as it does now. Um, and so I don't think I would, I ever felt at that time, you know, great anxiety. I think I felt some anxiety about what this could mean to humanity, but certainly as we learned more over the years, I did my own work on, uh, severe weather and how it would be affected. Um, you, you began to realize pretty quickly that, you know, this could be very damaging to humanity and something we needed to be already very concerned, really needed to be concerned about. Okay, so to paraphrase, it sounds like your concern about climate change has grown as our knowledge of the climate system and what we're doing to it has improved. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that process is like for you? What specifically, what specifically hit you the hardest of all of the discoveries that have happened over the past three, four decades? I think the thing that probably hit me the hardest was when we began to realize in the early 19 or the early 2000 that um, these changes in severe weather I was talking about uh, are really happening. That that we are seeing more heat waves. We always kind of expected that, but but that we are seeing it, and that more precipitation is coming as a larger event. You know, basically, a warmer Earth, uh, a warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor. So there's basic physics involved there. And because of that, that means you can get larger precipitation events as well, whether it's rainfall or snowfall. And, uh, and we're observing that. And the fact that, you know, we started doing studies showing that was the case. And then, and then started doing studies showing that hurricanes are likely to become, uh, uh, tropical storms are likely to be more intense. Um, those are the things that really began to worry me because that means, yeah, you know, we always knew that sea level rise could be important. But if you go back last week, NOAA put out um, a major report uh, saying that sea level rise by 2050 uh, is probably going to be about a foot, 10 to 10 inches to, to a foot in the eastern coast of the U.S. Well, if you go back to the 2017 National Climate Assessment in the report I co-led, um, we were talking about five inches to 1.2 feet or 1.3 feet or something like that. Um, and so the answer was right. 
But now we've narrowed the range and we narrowed it in a way that is towards the upper end of that range, um, which is what I think makes things scary. One of the things we keep discovering is that, and this goes a lot when I said earlier about uh, being called alarmist, is we're often not alarmist enough. Scientists tend to be too conservative and we tend not to kind of really focus in on the high end perhaps like we should sometimes because what we're finding with climate change is that um, the high end of the of the projections of the uncertainty range seems to be more where things are heading, not the low end. Um, so it's um, that that adds to that scariness about you know what this means to us. But it also just tells us to me that we need to work harder to solve it. It's funny you say that because it mirrors very closely the experience that I had that sort of defined my levels of concern for climate change. So I read a paper, in my opinion, the most influential paper on climate impacts maybe ever written. It's published in 2010 by two scientists, um, Stephen Sherwood and Matthew Huber. The title of the paper is An Adaptability Limit to Climate Change Due to Heat Stress. Now, this paper is 13 years old, so there's been an enormous amount of work in this space since. But the core conclusion remains accurate, which is if we warm the planet by three, four, five degrees, the percentage of the Earth's land surface that will be rendered uninhabitable due to physiologically uninhabitable due to extreme heat will be multiple times larger than the percentage of the land surface rendered uninhabitable by sea level rise. Uh, and that just blew my mind, particularly because, as you mentioned, we have this range of uncertainty. So scientists estimate based on current climate policies and emissions trajectories that we're headed for about three degrees of warming in the second half of the century. That is a median estimate. It is very possible that without changing the emissions trajectory at all, we could actually get four or five degrees of warming. Uh, and so that's where the concern really lies for, for me as well. Or, or maybe put another way, People, you often hear the statement, Earth's climate has always been changing. Earth's climate has been hotter than today in the past. And both of those statements are definitively true, but people who use them often don't follow up with the next critical fact, which is for most of Earth's history, the planet was not habitable for humans or for any large warm-bodied mammal. In fact, the planet was generally so hot that the only species that could live were plants, uh, amphibians, reptiles, insects, things that don't generate their own body heat. So it, it doesn't take much to start to push the earth back into conditions that are really, really detrimental for, for humans. Because there's something tangible about that, I think. You know, and, and Don Carter and I were talking before the episode about the research that you and others were involved in, uh, in terms of the ozone layer, because it was nicely descriptive. We could imagine this protective stratospheric casing around the world, and we could conceptualize a hole and why a hole might be problematic. Whether we understood the science behind that hole or not, we could understand it and it resonated in a, in a sort of a tangible way. And I think in the climate communication arena, we've been struggling with how to make this quite abstract climate idea seem tangible in the way that the ozone there felt tangible and to strike that balance between making something feel near and present enough of a problem, but not so much so that it needs to overwhelm. And so I'm, I'm probably putting words into your mouth here, but was that, did the ozone layer research solutions uh, situation form in any way, in any way a, a sort of template for you in terms of how to make this abstract idea of climate seem more tangible to people? Uh, no question. You know, I always had trouble trying to explain to farmers. You know, I'm a farm boy. I grew up in Southern Illinois on a farm. My dad loved farming. And 
I've always had trouble trying to explain to farmers why they should be concerned about climate change. But once we started talking about these changes in severe precipitation and heat waves, et cetera, farmers all, uh, started getting it because they, they said, oh, we're observing these larger rainfalls. You know, they, they're, you know they, they know exactly what happens on their property. And so if they've been there enough years, um, you know, they've seen these trends. And so they knew something was happening. And the fact that we then connect that with human-driven climate change kind of makes a light bulb go off. And for them, you know, that things are, um, that this is potentially important. So things have kind of changed that way in recent years because of that recognition. Um, it, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I think it's, it, this has always been a problem for us to try to figure out how to best communicate these issues, because you just talk about a few degree warming globally in people's eyes. I don't know what that means, but you start talking about things that affects their own backyard, um, then, then, then they can relate to it much better. Maybe to push on that a little bit. I went back and read your, your very famous paper on Antarctic ozone depletion published in nature in 1986. And one of the things that struck me was really at no point during the, let's say the ozone crisis, uh, was it possible to tie depletion of atmospheric ozone to direct experiential impacts? Nobody was really experiencing immediate detrimental impacts at the point in time when the hole was discovered. And yet, uh, it seemed much easier to communicate the consequences and the necessary actions and to translate science into policy when it came to um, ozone depletion com compared to what has proven to be true with climate change. And I think certainly part of that is, is due to the, just the size of the financial entrenched interests in the fossil fuel industry relative to the CFC industry. Um, but I'm wondering if you think there are other reasons why climate change has proven to be a more difficult topic to communicate. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, certainly, if we go back to ozone, and the, the primary issue there were chlorofluorocarbons that were entirely human produced, produced in factories, uh, chemical industry, um, and used in refrigeration and many other important uses. And, and then looking at the, the replacements for those kind of compounds. Um, and so because that, because they were just human produced and didn't have natural sources, it, it was a far simpler problem to deal with in terms of getting people to understand why this might be something important. You know, they, uh, skeptical people would tend to have some problems understanding the chemistry links that would lead to that and why, why chlorine atoms could end up having such an effect on ozone layer. But we would try to explain the, all of that to them. And that seemed to be accepted much more readily. And looking at climate change, where there are natural sources of carbon dioxide, we all know that, you know, we all breathe out carbon dioxide all the time. Um, and being able to explain the carbon cycle, being able to explain all the science that's going on, how human Activities, burning of fossil fuels leads to additional carbon dioxide and so forth um, uh, is a little more difficult for people to understand. But they could see that, you know, the observations, the trends we see, and they observed amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But, they, you know, making those links was just always much more difficult, getting it all the way up to the Earth's climate. So it's a much more complex issue, and it has taken, therefore, you know, um, a lot longer for people to begin to accept it. Um, I think that acceptance is largely happening. There's, there's still a few out there. Um, mostly be seem to be paid heavily paid people from the, from the fossil fuel industry, um, that, um, uh, put out misinformation about climate change, but generally it is much more accepted because the observations are so strong now that the show not only the drivers for the change, but what is actually happening globally. And people are observing changes in their own backyard that they can feel, you know, something's happening. One of the fundamental elements of my job these days 
is to encourage people to think more about the emotional aspects of climate change. And I suppose that's the premise for this entire show. And we talked more recently, you know, there's a new lexicon um, around the emotional aspects of engaging with climate, you know, phrases or ideas like eco-anxiety, eco-distress, climate anxiety, ecological grief. Um, And we know that um, the kind of constellation of emotions, if you like, uh, that have formed the basis of this whole season um, are, are experienced in a, in, a, in a wide and varied way by, by most of us. Um, I'm a psychologist, so I'm really comfortable doing this. I'm going to go ahead and ask some quite intrusive uh, psychological questions now. So take us on an, on an emotional journey, if, if you will. Um, what kind of, you know, what have these kind of so-called climate emotions been like for you? Uh, I, I can only imagine there must have been periods of anxiety, perhaps periods of anger, frustration, um, you know, and, and how, I'll then go on to ask how you've, how you've managed those as well. Um, not least because I think, you know, for a, Many of our, of our listeners who are early career researchers, climate activists, people who are involved in sustainability, or perhaps just people who are climate curious or concerned in their, in their daily lives, um, would, would perhaps look to people like, like you with a, a sort of multi-decade experience of um, climate communication, um, being involved in, in, in the climate uh, conversation for, for such a long period of time and would I'm sure be keen to know like what's this been like for you at an emotional level um, and how have you sustained yourself throughout this time my yeah my my focus has always been I kind of mentioned this earlier it's always been on the science and so because of that uh, I often don't get into those kind of highs and lows connected with um the emotional side of it. You know, I understand, you know, I write about the impacts on humanity all the time and how many people might be killed by certain events, but it's, um, but it's usually about the numbers. And so you don't tend to get into that. And I have, you know, there have been times when, um, I've gotten upset, but it's more been more related to attacks on me. Um, I remember in uh, 19, er, 2013, we came out with the uh, fifth uh, IPCC assessment. The day it was being uh, kind of officially, the uh, policymaker summary is always released first. And we were releasing it uh, from uh, the meeting location in Sweden. And the... At the same day, a letter or an op-ed appeared in the Wall Street Journal saying what a terrible biased scientist Wibbles and several other IPCC scientists were. Um, and in my case, they picked on me because I had done a, an assessment of the Northeast with the Union of Concerned Scientists. And, and uh, obviously, the Union of Concerned Scientists should be, is a biased organization because it's a NGO. Um, didn't make any sense, but nonetheless, um, and, and you don't go into science thinking you're ever going to be attacked. We're just trying to do your job. You know, I became a, an engineer and then a scientist because I wanted to understand how the earth works and, and, uh, try to help people and then to be attacked because somebody has an agenda related to fossil fuels. You know, that seems very strange, but but we face that, and um, and that's something I, I do continue to struggle with. You know that that I have more difficulty with than anything else. Yes, it bothers me badly how you know what society could look like by twenty fifty. And all my public talks, I talk all the time about you know concerns about leaving a legacy to our grandchildren and having them look back at us uh, thirty years from now and saying, you know, what were we thinking back in twenty twenty two. I'm very concerned about us getting into solutions. How do we get past this situation of um, 
almost continuous non-action. Um, you know, we have a little bit going on. It certainly has picked up uh, with the Biden administration, but um, and and there's a little bit going on worldwide. But it's not like we need to. Have, we need to really transform our energy and transportation systems over the next thirty years. Are we going to be able to do that? That's a big worry. But uh, I, I, I've never felt, though, that I was depressed. I, in fact, I've always felt optimism that humanity can do something about this. And, and, and that's always, I always try to leave a sense of hope in my talks because that's what I really feel is that we can do this. We can solve this problem just like we've solved many other problems. And that's, that's what carries me forward. Something I've been wildly curious about this, this entire call actually is, you have had enormous success communicating science effectively in an environment that does not make that easy. Specifically, you were responsible for producing a report on climate change uh, on behalf of an administration whose essentially whose stated position was that climate change is not real. Could you talk a little bit about that experience? What was it like? How did you manage to be so effective in your communication of science? Um, I would love to hear about that process. Well, I certainly don't mind having people disagree with things as long as they're being honest. It's when, and, and you know, I interact a lot with members of Congress, or at least I did before COVID, because actually I, the day the U.S. was to close down, I was to testify before the House uh, and, uh, and then wasn't able to because the, because the U.S. closed down. Um, so I, I've talked to many members of Congress on both sides of the aisle many times, and um, I've never felt true animosity uh, there. I always felt an honest discussion was underway. And in, and in many cases, um, a total lack of disagreement, you know, that there was not, there's not an issue with, uh, people saying, oh, you're wrong on the science. Um, they, it was more, you know, I always looked at it as, as I'm an educator you know, I'm trying to tell them what I understand and you know, what we know, and what we don't know. Um, and, and people generally, if they're being honest and truthful, will accept that. And, even with the, um, and we found that even with you know, the Trump administration, we, we didn't have huge issues in publishing. And we had a few things, a few people acted a little strangely. We um, tried to slow down the publication of the report, but, um, but not, in, not in major ways that really had an impact. Um, so usually truth wins. And uh, it's, I think it's just a matter of keep pushing to, to make sure that people understand. I, I, but I don't, I certainly never mind trying to have a, a, a reasonable discussion with people. This, this does beg the question, Don, how, <laughs> how do you stay calm and measured during these discussions when the stakes are just so high? I mean, it's one thing to have a discussion with someone who, isn't convinced about climate change on the streets. And it's an entirely other thing when you're speaking to some of the most powerful policymakers in the world. Oh, um, uh, a strong backbone, I guess. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, you know, I, I think it's that optimism that we can, we can solve this that carries me forward. Uh, Barbara puts up with me when I'm down. More than she asked to, she just said occasionally. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, she, she's a big help to me. Um, but most of the time, I don't have a serious issue. I've had my bad nights where, you know, I can't sleep because something is really bothering me about this, but mostly not. You know, I'm mostly, um, you know, keep working on the science, trying to carry the communications forward, uh, and and what we're understanding about the science. Uh, you know, I got some exciting new things coming out. You know, that's um, you got a paper. We're waiting for the journal to uh, 
agree to publish, but it basically says that if we transition our fossil fuel and transportation systems to away from fossil fuels by mid-century, that we no longer have an air quality issue. And that itself would be huge. Um, you know, 8 million lives saved per year because we don't have air quality issues. Um, yeah, so, so the science keeps me excited and pushing on. Maybe that's why I can't really retire. I, I retired, quote, from the university uh, in, in August, but uh, everybody knows that it's not retirement. It's just Don transitioning to Don 3.0, which means uh, I'm on to the next stage of my, uh, my career. All right, Don Wobbles. I'm so pleased we had a chance to speak with Don because he's been involved in an important way in the study of climate science really since it became a serious field of scientific inquiry. I mean, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration. You know, he wasn't he wasn't studying climate science back in the late 1800s when Arrhenius and Tyndall were coming up with the idea of the greenhouse effect, but... Um, yeah, just been involved in so many important stages of the of our collective journey of understanding the climate, from the first IPCC report to you know the twenty eighteen National Climate Assessment in the United States. Um, such a such a privilege to get that that perspective. We're making Don, we're making Dom seem really old. But <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no, that, yeah. that was not at all my intention. My intention was to say that he's yeah, very wise. I mean, it, it is incredible. It just the. The amount of time he's been he's been involved in this and and and, the, the, and how the, resilient he's remained. That's the thing that really blows me away is how enthusiastic yeah, and excited he still is, despite decades of working on a very important problem. With, I mean, there has been progress, but not nearly as much progress as we need, and an enormous amount of antagonism, um, sometimes directed at him. Uh, and this is something that I wanted to, this is what I want to talk about for our, for our outro today is, you know, uh, let's call it loosely the, um, the don't look up phenomenon. So I don't know if for our listeners, maybe they have, maybe they haven't seen the movie don't look up, but it did a wonderful job of capturing the special brand of loneliness reserved for people who, are not just feel alone with their worries, but are attacked, actively attacked when they try and share them with other people. It's one thing to feel like no one understands my my worries. It's another thing to have people actively, actively attack you for sharing them, particularly when the reason you're sharing them is not for any sort of self-benefit, but purely because you you got into the field genuinely because you want to help others. And I think um, we've talked about this a little bit before, but the human brain is evolved to understand the world through its connections with other human brains. Like the, the, the worst thing that you can do to a human being is to isolate them. The fastest way to make someone go crazy is to put them in solitary confinement because you lose your reference frame. Um, you, you can just get, you lose the idea of like, are my thoughts reasonable or rational or connected to reality? Because you can't test with other people and see if they agree. Um, and I think for that reason, it can be really, really difficult to sit with climate distress as a, as a citizen because you may feel that you're alone and that can contribute to asking yourself questions like, am I crazy? Am I the only one that recognizes that there's a, that there's a problem? 
when everyone in my life seems to be going on with their day-to-day life as though there's, you know, everything's fine. Uh, I actually, I can't tell you the number of people that I've spoken to that have, that have cried in front of me, uh, essentially a relative stranger at this point, um, when discussing not specifically what they're afraid of when it comes to climate change, but the feeling that no one in their life understands and, and this leads almost to a sense of derealization, like the world around you isn't real. Um, and we've talked a little bit about how to combat this sort of isolation, seeking out and finding communities, uh, but especially sharing what you're going through, even if people don't understand, having the power to share. And I think that is the thing that makes being in someone like Don's position or a public climate scientist's position uh, or climate activist position um, even more difficult is that you do not have necessarily a, it's much more difficult for you to share your worries publicly because people will attack you for them as opposed to just saying, oh, you know, I don't understand or I'm sorry you feel that way or, you know, it's not that bad. People will attack your character. Um, And I think not having the outlet, not just feeling like no one understands, but feeling like you cannot say something is even more difficult than just feeling alone. Feeling alone and being unable to try and take action to feel less alone. So what I want to talk about with you, Patrick, is how do you deal with, how do you mitigate the consequences of people attacking you when you are trying to talk about climate change publicly? What do you do to stay sane? How do you deal productively with trolls? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, you know, there's good guidance online. Right? There's, a, there's a good medium, uh, medium.com article about how to respond to trolls. In the, in, you know, from from outside the climate movement, which we'll put we'll put in the show notes. Yeah, and and because you know, you're absolutely right. This is you know, there's this whole this this idea of like don't feed the trolls, right? Um, as a way of kind of responding to trolls in the way that we'd respond to a playground bully um, in that kind of simp- kind of quite simplistic way of saying. Um, if you don't give them any attention, then they, you know, they'll just stop. Um, but you're absolutely right. One of the issues with that is you, you, you don't have an opportunity to present your argument in an eloquent way, right? If you just shut the conversation down, you know, and you know, anti-climate trolls, you know, they, they, there are places online where they will be discussing how best to do this and what, what their likely impacts will be. One of them is... But either either these people will mention us and and, and elevate our status and elevate our publicity, or it will or it will shut the conversation down because they're being told not to feed the trolls. So you know, but I know I've said all season. The answer to this is individual. For some people, it might be about actually saying, "Yeah, you know what? I need to disconnect from this, and I need might even need to disconnect from the, the climate conversation completely for a couple of days, right? And lean into non-climate friends." You know, a lot of people I know, a lot of climate activists talk about the importance of non-climate friendships, right? The people who are, their communities outside the community, right? At other times, it might, it might be about saying, actually, yeah, I do need to talk to some, to some peers about this who are likely also having the same experiences so I can just vent, right? But then there are ways of kind of actually strategically outlining your case from an evidence-based perspective, um, and leaving the conversation there, right? And this is where the medium.com article is really useful, actually, is about saying, okay, you know, here are, here are some ways of responding to those kind of, what do we call them, zombie arguments? You know, those, those zombie arguments that won't die from the, from the kind of uh, climate denialist movement like about, you know, normal, normal uh, historical variations in climate, you know, pre-industrialization, all that kind of stuff. And this leads really nicely into the second point I wanted to talk about, which is, there, there are some obvious cases where not feeding a troll is the right thing to do. If they're leading with ad hominem attacks or being particularly abusive, clearly those people are not interested in having a good faith discussion and engaging with them is, is not helpful. But there are 
in my experience, there is another group of people who it can be very unclear whether they are trolling or are simply uneducated in the topic or have read some misinformation and think that it is true uh, and are actually trying to engage in a good faith discussion with you. Um, And I have struggled myself in trying to identify which groups of people are interested in a good faith discussion and which are not, assuming that they are not being directly abusive up front. And I'll share one technique that I stumbled on by accident and have found quite useful. And uh, maybe if you can opine on this as well, I'd love to hear your, your instinct. So I was once in a professional context having a discussion about climate science with someone who did not understand that climate change was human caused and is a serious issue. And specifically, we were speaking about whether or not climate models are useful. And we'd spent about an hour going back and forth, relitigating every little uncertainty related to the computer modeling of climate, of which there are many. And it got to the point where it was we had made zero progress on the core issue, which is should we be using the output of climate models for some business purpose? And so I stopped the conversation and just asked, I said, look, what what would need to be true in order for you to be convinced that climate models are useful tools? What evidence would you need to see put in front of you that would convince you. And his response was, there is no evidence you could put in front of me that would convince me that climate models are useful tools. And that that is a very clear indication that this was not a good faith discussion, right? And this is something that I've, I've since gone on and used multiple times and found very effective because one, it moves the discussion from a, uh, combative or um, from an argument to a discussion. It puts you on the same side because you say, look, let's, you tell me what you, what parts of this are difficult for you and we'll, we'll try and work on those together. And second, it creates a mutual commitment, which is this is what I need. And if you meet that need, then I will be convinced. And then it's a lot easier for you as a climate concerned person to go through your body of evidence and knowledge and say, okay, this is the particular piece of evidence and knowledge that is going to be most helpful for this person. Um, yeah, it's, it's not a panacea. It doesn't work all the time, but I found it really useful. What I'm, I'm super interested to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, having, well, okay. So here's, here's kind of like step one. I would say. And again, we'll, we'll, let's put this in the show notes. Um, this fantastic organization in the UK, I think I've mentioned them before, Climate Outreach, have done a whole sort of guide and series of workshops and, and uh, workbooks all around how to have a climate change conversation, right? And they, they break it down between, because you're right, you have to consider the context, you have to consider the scenario, okay? So if you're two scientists debating the science, that's very different to engaging with somebody who is, um, let's say, motivated to um, undermine your argument for, you know, ulterior reasons, right? Or um, that might be somebody actually whose political and social and cultural identity kind of mm, demands that they are um, that, you know, that they, that they would view, uh, climate science and climate change as a hoax, a, you know, uh, um, a leftist political agenda, a right, all this kind of thing. Um, and you might get people who just genuinely, 
um, are curious and who just who genuinely don't, you know, haven't really stopped to think about the sirens before. Uh, and I've had, <laughs> I don't know about you, I've had probably had all three of those conversations in the past two weeks. <laughs> uh, and um, I think, we see, you know, so what climate outreach talk a lot about is consider, firstly, think about the, the motives and motivations of the other person, right? Think about what depth of conversation you're going to have here, right? Is this a, just a quick conversation over the, over the garden fence? Is this a conversation on public transport? Is this a conversation with a colleague? Um, is this actually going to be a really in-depth conversation where you've got time and you can really present your arguments? And so, you know, firstly, consider the depth, but also really think about, because you have to start by, you know, what climate outreach call respecting your conversational partner and finding common ground. You know, the thing something that Catherine Hayhoe does really well uh, in her, you know, with her examples of, how, of engaging people in, in rural Texas, right? Um, in, in the climate argument. Um, if, and and we, ha you know, we have to see these conversations. We have to appreciate these conversations, not as a kind of didactic, here's what you need to understand, because they'll be coming from it exactly the same way, likely, right? Depending on which of those groups they're, they're in. Um, but much more about saying, actually, yeah, I'm going to really, I'm going to really stop and listen to what you're saying, right? And I really stop and listen to why you get, you know, what, what it is precisely about the science that you don't believe, right? Or why, why you think actually, um, accepting the science will be problematic for you. Like really try to understand these things. Um, because we, we've tried the sort of, um, information deficit model, you know, for, for a long time, if, if I could only just tell this person what they need to know. Right. And like we talked about with uh, Joe Duggan, right at the very beginning of the season, episode one, if there's one thing that the scientific communication literature teaches us, is like that, that does not work. <laughs> it does the opposite. It has the opposite effect. Trying to shove facts down someone's throat actually is more likely to harden their position. Um, and it reminded me, what you were just saying reminded me of something I've heard before about active listening, which is that you should, we may have even actually talked about this previously in this season, I can't remember, but that you should try to, before you present your position, you should try to be able to reiterate the other person's position in your own words to their satisfaction. Demonstrate that you really, really do understand where they're coming from. That will help you not only build like respect with that person to show that you are actually listening to them and you do actually care about their position and where they're coming from, but also it will help you tailor your communication yeah. of your position to yeah. be more effective. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So respect your conversational partner, find common ground, ask them questions as well, and listen and show that you've heard them, right? Th th these are the kind of, you know, there's, there's a lot we can learn from uh, like, you know, in in the world of therapy, we're talking about things like nonviolent communication, transactional analysis, all this kind of stuff. Active listening, right? All these, all these kinds of things. It, it, it really can't just be a one-way conversation, right? Because, you know, I think, you know, a lot of these people would have felt patronized. They would have felt condescended. They would have felt excluded from the climate conversation, right? Um, and so this is about bringing them in and almost making them sort of experts of their, of their own experience. Now, again, if they are if they had motivated reasoning, right? If there's, if there's someone who, who actually doesn't want to, for, for whatever reason, accept anything you're saying, you know, or, or, or if you can tell straight away that this is, this is not a well-meaning conversation, right? This is just someone who's trying to um, show you up or, or embarrass you or just, or just scream their, their argument at you. And, I, you know, you've had plenty of these. I've had plenty of these. There's plenty of these online. Um, actually, there's, we're not going to get anywhere with those conversations. We're just not. Um, but, you know, fortunately, that, that group of people is getting smaller and smaller proportionally everywhere, not least in the US. Um, so it's what, what I'm finding much more common are these sort of people who are coming around to the argument but don't want to feel, um, don't want to feel talked down to or, you know, want to feel that they've got something to offer the climate movement, right, and that their perspective matters. Um, uh, you know, so in, in the UK, for example, we've, you know, there's a conversation about how to make people from, uh, sorry, from urban areas, say from ethnic minorities who aren't, who don't see themselves in the climate movement, right? Um, and who's, frankly, these kind of very abstract conversations about 
future risk scenarios and, and other places really don't matter because you know what, there's a cost of living crisis here um, and people are just trying to put food on their plates. So how to bring those people into the climate conversation, you know, and from within the community, there are ideas about, you know, so the conversations in London say, talk about air pollution, right? Talk, and talk about their kids being affected by air pollution. Uh, talk about food scarcity, right? And, and climate risks there. But listen to their story, you know, listen to what, like, you know, what, what, what matters to them. You know, all, all this kind of stuff that, you know, it's, uh, it has to be, a it has to be a conversation of equals as much as possible, right? Because you're, you're armed with climate science knowledge. This person's armed with their own lived experience. Um, and they'll be able to tell you very clearly, um, why they're skeptical, why they're afraid to read, to read the science, why change is hard for them, right? Whatever, whatever it is. Um, and stay connected after the conversation. So you know, we've, we're kind of, we're trying to work out a sort of a playbook, right, about how to have these conversations because, you know, so much of it depends on who the parties are and what, and what their motivations are. Which is just the perfect place to end this episode because it segues fantastically into our guest for next week, who shall remain a mystery until we drop the episode. Uh, I know we've been teasing this episode uh, for a while, the next episode that we drop will be our mystery guest. We're both, Patrick and I, quite excited about this episode. I think it's an important conversation. Looking forward to sharing it with you as soon as we can. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. As always, we are going to run Broccoli by Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs, and we will see you in the next two or three weeks. Thank you.